0: Whatever they were talking about, and whomever they were talking about, went a long way back. Why? With Arsia Tekun. Thank you for sharing. It's awesome to finally get to on. We've had so many koreto over the years, over a decade now, eh? That we've
1: yeah, how long have yeah, When did we start? Like 2007? So, yeah, 2008,
0: I think. 2008. Yeah, 2008. In Utah. Yeah, and and now, in Utah. It's in now Park. we're here in Tamaki Makoto, so good to be able to let other people in on the koreto a little bit. We'll start off with you, Terry. Yeah.
2: Oh, um, kia ora Koto, uh, kia ora Daniel, um, ko Wanganui te awa, um, ko Ati Haunui, a paparangi te iwi, um, he uri ahau no Wanganui, um, ko Teri Taala, te ko ingoa, kia ora.
1: A tu pa whala maa, Loli Suifua, um, yes, um, Taala, Shane Taala, um, Salmon, born and raised in, in Aotearoa. Born and raised actually in Wanganui and also um, up the Wanganui River through um, at Kawaik through Ngā Pairangi, the hapu the there was fed and looked after by the whananga there. And my dad is Faliasi'u, and our, my title is from um, Pu'pua in Sava'i, so my title name is Ta'awa. And my mum is Afgasi Samoan uh, Chinese. So. Who made a name as the Ahuis from um Alisa in um Opulu.
0: and so yeah well, we'll start with terry and then go to shane again same question for both but like maybe just if you mind sharing a little bit about your background
2: yeah um so i was born in auckland and i've just realized that there's a few aucklanders who 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 think they're core um hardcore aucklanders if you were born in auckland because there's been such an Influx of immigrants to, to Auckland, or just influx of people migrating to Auckland from the provinces. So if you're born in Auckland, then you're like a, a bit more of an Aucklander than than other Aucklanders. Yes, yeah, so I was born in Auckland at National Women's, which was I guess one of the hospitals for women, but it's closed now. Um, it was
1: an institution. It was an institution. The yeah. The health system. Yeah.
2: So my mum moved from Wanganui to Auckland when she married my dad, so she was one of those Māori, I guess, who moved from the rural, from her papakainga to the bigger cities, yeah. And then when I was 10, we moved back to Wanganui, and not only to Wanganui but up the Wanganui River, which is a kind of remote area, and we lived there until I was... In my seventh form, which is now year 13, yeah, and then we moved to Wangaratta town, and that's yeah, that's been my so you lived kind at of, Korniti, yeah, a formative experience. I think moving back to um, living up the Wangaratta River because it was rural, it was remote. Um, there was only maybe when I first went to school, there, there was only like 30 kids, and that was big at the time, I guess, and you know, there was a teacher who lived there, they had, um, Ministry of Education would provide the housing for them, yeah, so, and that was a big difference from the big school I had come from up here in Auckland, and everyone was your cousin, and the food was better, it was just such the food a was different, better up the it alley. was, up yeah. the river, like, just a different experience. How old were you over then
1: Ten hey, when you moved back.
2: Ten when we moved back, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just different. Like, um, my grandparents, when you live up the river, you have to be fairly self-sustainable, and so all of the homes would have their own little orchards, and, like, some aunties would have better... Would have peach trees, so you'd know you'd go to their house for peaches, you'd go to another auntie for different types of plums, that kind of thing. So, as a foodie, I guess even at that early age, that kind of thing. That feed into. Yeah, clicked, I clicked into all of food. that. Appreciation mm. of food and just knowing the seasons too, so you'd know in, um, as you moved into Easter that was the time where you'd go and find mushrooms or field mushrooms. Yeah, and like, all that kind of thing. So you're kind of, the way you, you saw the world or experienced it was around those seasonal shifts, yeah. Oh,
0: awesome. Yeah. Very different from... <laughs> but
2: different from, yeah, our, our city city life. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> where you just went down the to the dairy and, you know, got your bread and... Yeah, you're mm. Yeah,
0: no, obviously I think even when we moved over, I think the first year here, it was even, I mean, even though we're in Auckland, I remember thinking, like, there wasn't stuff available all the time. So even though it was a big supermarket that had everything available, like, compared to the US. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh, I started oh, th- there's a certain season.
2: <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, yeah for, or, or even the shops <laughs> shut, like the supermarket shut at 10 o'clock or something. Oh man, yeah. yeah
0: so but that but it was good i mean i think that is especially when we talk we'll get to it later but just started to make me think yeah like that environmental consciousness you know is quite relevant Mm. right to things going on today um any other food stuff was there anything favorite because you said the food was good was it like a favorite thing or something you look forward to a lot
2: i think oh what i've realized um when because when we first moved back to Wanganui up the Wanganui River, we spent a bit of time at my grandfather's house, and he would make all the kids' lunches. And what was different about that was that it would be last night's dinner and your sandwiches. And that was the coolest thing for me, because I was just used to Marmite sandwiches or peanut butter sandwiches. And then you got a taste of last night's meal, and if you enjoyed that meal, it was really awesome. So, yeah, that's what I really
0: appreciated that. <laughs> cool. No, that's awesome. Food oriented.
2: Yeah.
0: No, definitely. About <laughs> you, Shane. Yeah. Um, from yeah.
1: So my forward? my family is an immigrant family from Samoa. Six of us. I got six. I got five other siblings. And there was only two of us that were born in New Zealand. So my older siblings were much older than myself. They are born in Samoa. So they, they had the, that whole experience of leaving. Samoa, and I know from my mum who my birth mum passed away in 1984 when I was about 14 15. But I know from my mum in particular, her heart was always in Samoa. Like every day, I would hear stories more so from my mum about um, life in Samoa, but it was shared in an experiential way, it wasn't shared in a way that is a story to tell. It's just so I kind of feel like. My my mum spent her whole life homesick, you know. <clears throat> but she had she had um, all the children and just the things that she was amazing at. But what I also remember growing up is that because my mum was amazing she's Chinese Samoan, right? So her way and of her ability and her cooking was actually renowned throughout our Samoan and Pacifica community in Wanganui. But then I realised my I grew up in a home where my mum was making kōpai, pineapple pies and uh, masi now. but she was boxing them and seeing them in around the country, so she kind of ended up having a, a a following, you know, around I think down to Parirua mainly, and yeah, I think it was mainly down to Wellington, to our different families down there. We, we, she was sending, but also she was a, a gifted and talented um, seamstress in terms of. So you know, this is back in the late 60s, because I was born in 69, so when my family came over, it was in that time of the industrial age, for and that was the thing that pulled uh, my parents, and that, that's what I'm, I always remember is that, you know, I grew up for a palangi where eventually you always get exposed to entrepreneurship and the the palangi concept of success and all this kind of stuff. And then... I also grew up being exposed to books like Richard Branson, because that's what people were reading to say, these are successful people. But the more I got exposed to that, the more I realized as I started to learn more about the the stories of the the journeys and the transitions of my parents, more so my parents' journey from Samoa to New Zealand, what I realized is that those are stronger narratives of innovation, three-dimensional thinking, and ability to climatise, adapt and, re- and recalibrate to survive and thrive in New Zealand. And and I think those are the things that are really important as well. Is That's what I always remember. Because those are things that you're taught not by a book, but you, you learn because I grew up in a home where those things were evident all around me, but not spoken of. We grew up in Manganui. I didn't grow up in Parirua or Otara or, or South Auckland where or Ponsonby and Kingsham, where predominantly our Pacific communities were. What was interesting for me is our neighbours in the East was the Titana whānau were Māori. And so I don't know how it happened, but it happened where I got to grow up um, belonging and being attached to their family. Because we went to school together, like everything we did was almost 24-7. So when they travelled to different things, even when they grew up as high school kids, I was always with them. Um, including up at Dei Papakainga, up uh, Kawaik, And so the, I think for me, the riches of my upbringing is captured in three-world thinking through growing up um, in, a, in a Samoan home, but in a pālangi world, but also living in a Māori um, te ao context in terms of um, growing up at a marae. And what was interesting for me about Kawaik is it's a living marae, so people live there. You know, it's it's not just a place to visit because there's a twenty-first or party or meeting hui or or tangi people live there. And, and I th- I always remember now when I look back that my exposure to Te ao Māori and to Māori tango was I thought that was normal. I didn't know that at the time that that was a thing because I think back then I don't know if it it, it really was. Um I need to find now, even now in the work that I do, I look back and I realise there's such a, a separation between um those things. But yeah, that that was I guess my my upbringing. Uh,
2: I guess, I don't know, what would be a, yeah.
0: What if it, would we put it in relation to, like, what would be the difference between Papakainga and like Turonga Waiwai?
2: <laughs> to me, the Papakainga is like a place where you have been raised or someone in your family has been raised, like you've been raised on that land, that's your Papakainga, your... You're of that place. Yeah.
1: Or not that that well, place that, belongs to you but but, but well, that, yeah, you fuck you, you belong kind of, to that place. Yeah,
2: but you've also had some physical contact with it. Your Turanga Waiwai is probably about the same. Hmm. How different would it be?
1: So yeah, what are, what are the characteristics or that that make that differentiate between Papakanga and Turanga Waiwai? Is one extrinsic and the other intrinsic, or?
2: Well, they're both intrinsic. Mm. That's a very interesting question. There.
0: Yeah, no, I was just thinking, you know, like um, I remember when the stuff was going on over here with the Umata and the way that like Pundit oh, was talking about like papakaianga and and then everyone was talking about like some of the history of that Fenua as well and how it was feeding Auckland and for me like I started associating like a place that nourishes you and mm. you know so it's like that's how I that's worked. a good yeah, yeah started thinking about it
2: a good yeah way of putting it
0: whereas like you, you, you have a fuck up a connection but it's maybe different from a kind of can always be the tricky one right yeah. like, because we, you know nowadays too people live all over the place and here right you have Manafenu and you also have Matawaka which I became aware of when I came here mm-hmm. I think you introduced me to those terms as well And I guess thinking about like we do live in a complicated reality but the places that you live nourish you especially if you're Mm. like I guess have a relation with that place or you're being mindful or conscious of that. Like I like how you talked about like you've physically you know engaged with the place. Whereas Turaga Wai Wai again I'm not sure but just the way I hear people saying it and using it I think is a different it's also fuck papa but it's like do you ancestrally Papa to that place? Yeah. Or do I faces, connect to that place? That? Yeah. yeah.
2: I'm just trying to think how I've heard it being used.
1: But but also what's interesting is that when you think of those terms and the context of how we're trying to visualise and actualise when we are on that place, what is it that makes it papakang <clears throat> as opposed to tūrangā What One of the big challenges is that because we've all grown up, te au Pākehā park the world, often it's hard to separate the lens that we're using to look at those constructs, right? In terms of that space. And, and I find sometimes it might be easier to understand them through a realm context in terms of those things. But whatever it is, what I do know is that everyone's, people, depending on the whakapapa connection or the context of how they see, feel or view that place are going to have a different lens and possibly a different narrative and definition of how they see that to them. An example of that is if you look at Ihu Matau as an example, you, I never heard the context when everything was happening in the media, but it's kind of like, well, who's the iwi for Ihu Matau? And so you know, people would say, well, wakato tainui is the iwi for Ihu Matau. But then, okay, so who's the mana whenua? all of a sudden that context changes it again because now it's the mana context of uhumatao is known as te Maki is the mana whenua. but then it's looking at well who's the hapu for uhumatao and you know people would argue white's well, tiakitai and tiahewaru who both up whakapapa to that space and quite often the the kōrero between them it's kind of like um, Tiakiwaru is the is the hapu of ihu, ihu Matao but Tiahi Tai has a pop connect and they're both closely related hapu, right? But then the next question is then then who's the um, who's the Hokanga for Ihumatao? That, well, that's Makoto Marae. and so and so when you look at I think for Pakeha when they hear that description of that place, I I think it's really a challenge for them to understand. But but even sometimes I think in the Maori space it's a challenge. Because all of those are different contexts. Mm. And yet they all have a point of relevance of whakapapa connect to that to Iho Matau. And I think that's a, a good example of the hyper-complexity that we have in trying to navigate Te Māori and Te Ao Marama. And then on top of that, we're quite often forced to see it through a Te Ao Pākehā lens um, because of legislative acts or, or Te Tiriti of Waitangi, And I think the majority of the general public aren't aware of any of those governance strategic level things and how they play out at a kaitiaki level too in terms of of representation for decision making so when we think of Māori tanga and culture you don't think of that not through that, that context but often it's in that kind of context and a certain environment where the decisions are made either for and on behalf um, of, of iwi Māori with Crown or, or local government. Whereas, what the ideal is through Tatiriti is how do we do it for and with even Māori? Mm. And that's the new terrain, I think, that, yeah. that's coming out.
0: So it's complex. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and then you've got that of Kaima and.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about Te Ranga Māori and Papakaima. I think Papakaima might be locational in why Waiwai might be locational but also depends on how much mātauranga you might have and how you can how how, how knowledgeable you are of about your Papa. Mm. yeah okay because then that would give you if you had that a level of expertise a level of mātauranga Māori and you you're quite um you knew the depth an extent of your whakapapa papa, then you could your tudumu waiwai could be quite broad.
0: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The closer you look, it always ends up being. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. How far back? And,
2: yeah. How uh, many connections yeah. you are making?
0: And. Because it's even engaging in like, uh, like common spaces and stuff in the way of hoko and faka papa works in, in those spaces. The same thing. Like if you know your, if you know your genealogy, if you know your whakapapa, papa, like. That, that just broadens your connections mm. and, and how you can position yourself. Yeah. Now, you're always positioned, but the more you know, mm. the more you can leverage that. Yeah. And then on top of that, if you have oratory skills. Yeah. Then you're able to, I right. mean, it really is, you know, like, everything just, it, the mm. depends is always the answer, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm.
3: <laughs> Do you have anything to add on that, thought,
0: Since you've been doing a lot of pohoko and stuff lately, but I just seemed, seemed like it was related. Yeah, um, I mean,
3: I, I missed the part where, where Shane was talking. I don't know if he was talking about kind of the connection of Papa um, to, you know, broader Oceania, specifically in Samoa, where it was Melanite who talks about, you know, she's always talking about the, the Papa of Papa or the yeah. genealogy of Papa within, you know, the broader Oceania yeah, right. context with Maori. And she, she links it all the way back to Samoa, where the question of story the creation story of samoa starts with papa mm. so as papa this you know there's you have the deities and then all their children were it, were a different papa i don't know if you're familiar with, with um these creation stories but it's interesting in the ways that you know tongans you use, use the word papa and papakai and then with Maori with with uh, papa and then even going back to this idea of tonga tonga and samoa were both calling pakeha the same word which was papalangi mm. mm. and then now it's bong just with just one, but it was two. It was Papa and Nang. Oh, yeah. and then there was a there was a oh my gosh. yeah. There was a narrative that I was reading recently of a of a Englishman who got stuck in Tonga and you know became a native and had you know married had some Tongan wives, um, but then he kind of explains the way that they were using Papa Longi, um, and, and that they would they the reason why they are were using Papa to describe you know. Pakeha, or the Europeans, was because they they were coming from the sky, because of their ships were coming from you know far dist- uh, mm. far a distant place um, beyond what they were you know the familiar with in in the you know the broader Moana that they would just call them Papalangi because they sh- they came out of the sky, which is connected to kind of Papa and Longi. But the translation, if you go to Mariner, William Mariner, a popular um, book among, like, Tongan history is, you know, they're saying that, like, oh, their mass struck the sky, and that's why they called it papalongi. Oh, but yeah, in this yeah. other narrative, they're saying no. They're just acknowledging that these Europeans came from so, such the a far distant place that they just called it papalongi because oh, just right. like the sun comes out of, you know, the earth and goes back into the earth. Yeah. Well, it's
1: when you first spot yeah. them on the horizon. Yeah. yeah. They're on the water, but the sail's up yeah, in, in the sky. Clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So always, (laughs) there's always (laughs) more to go, huh? Yeah. Oh, awesome. And then speaking about then, like mataranga, you mentioned that as well, and like knowledge, Wondering if maybe you want to talk, if you're willing to share a little bit about the place that you work at as a librarian. I I love libraries because I I think about like my own critical consciousness and you know, it took me a long time before I got to uni, I dropped out of like two different unis, took me like seven years to get halfway through a degree, Um, but when I finally clicked and was able to stick it around long enough. I look back, and I was like, man, like, my dad was a janitor at our local public library, and that's probably the only reason, like, I love the libraries, because my dad worked graves, and he'd go clean, and so me and my sister would go, and we'd hang out at the library, and, like, we wanted to help him out, but mainly he wanted us to just be in the space. Yeah. And so, like, started reading, and even films, like, I've always loved movies, but, like, the library had different kinds of movies, right? Mm. It wasn't like the mainstream Hollywood stuff, like they had the independent films there mm. and documentaries. And I never would have been exposed to that had I not been in a library. And then, again, like this is just a young person. So then later in life, I was just like, oh man, like all these seeds that were planted was because of this public site of knowledge access, you know. And so anyways, libraries are cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you work as a, as a librarian and as a Maori librarian. Yeah. Maybe you
2: can share a little bit about what you do. <laughs> oh no, I've just been. We just had um, three days of library conference, and just reminded me why I, I guess, what I liked about library, and it's that like what you said, just that access to knowledge and information, and equitable access, and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think um, when I finished my degree in social anthropology um i was looking for something else to study and also i spent a lot of time at the library because it was different from the uni library the public library you know it's just like how you want to have a break from reading texts all the time and i just was bringing back all these gorgeous books you know and thinking this stuff is free and it's you know you can just well free-ish free enough, um, bring it all back and just take on all these different perspectives or, you know, look at different art or whatever. And so when I, um, was thinking about what I wanted to study next, it was just like, wow, well, you know, libraries are pretty cool places. or. And the other alternative was museums, but I, I chose libraries, and and here I am. I don't know, decades lat- later, still in libraries. Um,
1: it helped yeah. that you used to devour books, though. Yeah,
2: eh? yeah but my dad w- was was ever reader too, so that was sort of in me for, since mm. I was young. But after you yeah, after that first degree, it was just, I guess, rekindling that love of libraries and access. Um, Yeah, and so now here I am, I am an acting manager of the Matauranga Māori team. Um, And Matauranga Māori because we look after and care for the Māori collection, and which includes also like the research collection as well as lending yeah and um, I guess for for me when I first began in the collection space so a bit different from public spacing uh, public facing roles but um, being responsible for selecting the books that go into the mighty collection it kind of dawned on me that the books that were held in that collection, and it was a lot of iwi history and stuff like that, was only a small amount of the knowledge that was captured. Yeah, through best, through anthropologists. Yeah, um, yeah and, like, I guess sadness for, for the stuff that was lost, but also, like, responsibility for, for trying to preserve what, what was captured. And also an awareness of all the kind of baggage that went in with those iwi histories, like, you know, just that anthropological lens and the Western kind of understanding and also what they chose to collect and, you know, the voices that were unheard and all of that kind of stuff, I guess, that, you know, most Indigenous peoples would recognise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I like the idea of a library, but then also it depends on, you know, what is in there, Mm. right? And Mm. if the people, like, what are you gonna look for? And what, you know, and I guess, what do you envision could be, would be included in the future? I mean, as far Mm -hmm. as like maybe what exists now versus, I just remember like, another thing that blew me away being here was, um, since we've lived here, is just seeing, interacting with carvings, for example. And, you know, I can't read them. Mm. But like when I've heard, you know, people, just recite Mm kōrero around, you know, their their farenui or their Mm warenui or, you know, or all these different, or wherever it might be, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, like, there's all this, you know, knowledge that's there if you know how to read it. Then Or even tamoko, tatao, and I I like to play around with film, and I love movies and stuff, too. So I guess what is there that you see that, you know, indigenous folks offer, but then maybe what do you envision could also be part of what... Mm is captured in, you know what I
2: mean? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, Yeah, so there's a whole lot of Māori Mātāranga that is unrecognised by, you know, because it doesn't fit in that Western understanding of what information looks like or, you know, what knowledge looks like. And so, yeah, so people can go into a whare and and read the whare and be able to gain that Mātāranga and knowledge from it. One of the things is, should we even be collecting right? Māori stuff and, and are we the best people to be looking after it, you know? Because one of the um, things about preservation or to preserve something is to actually keep it away from, from use, right? But, a lot, but for Māori, if you want to keep the, uh, the mauri of something, It means that you use it a lot. You touch it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the things that... So is that
1: a preservation challenge?
2: Yeah, it's a challenge for preservation. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge for libraries. Yeah. Um, Because that's
1: what makes it living, yeah? Yeah,
2: Yeah. that's what keeps it living.
0: I think that... Because when you mentioned earlier when you were thinking about whether you want to do libraries or museums, it hadn't dawned on me until you mentioned that, but I was just like, wow, that's right. Like, I think as indigenous peoples, you know, from around the world, like, that's... Our library is sometimes captured in the museum. Yeah, act, parts yeah. of our right? library. Yeah. Yeah. so because of that yeah. colonial history in yeah. reality, like, they've
2: separated, they've separated
0: stuff that, you know, with us, it might operate in one place. And, yeah. And again, also being practical and responding to what we have available to us, but I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Like, a lot of our library resources are not in, you know, yeah. and I guess yeah. just e- even being here, Auckland Library, like for Auckland Uni Library, like, there's this big music archive, you know, mm, mm. you not have to play around with that stuff, but I hadn't thought about that before, mm. it was like, oh yeah, mm. like, I got introduced to film and books through my experience with the library, but then there's just all these other possibilities, but like you mentioned, is, if it's supposed to be public, what, you know, that gets a little bit tricky too, as to what's for everybody, yeah. all the time or not, yeah, and yeah. how do you, and even when we do research, is like, how do we manage, you know, the protections around knowledge, mm. and I find that. I don't know, just in my personal, I guess my personal stance at the moment is things are tapu only in their tapu state, right? They're only protected in that state, but you have to have the knowledge of how to access it. It's yeah, not that yeah, it's yeah. not accessible, it's that it's only accessible in particular ways. Yeah. And that yeah. might require papa. that might require, you know, mm. maturanga, that might require certain relationships or preparation. Whereas the public face is going to be... So yeah, you raised more questions, right? <laughs>
2: yeah one of the one of the problems we're having currently with Maori with anything that we think we want to collect or we think we want to capture is like are we the best people to be capturing this? How are we going to look after that knowledge right who who will be allowed to access it? yeah um, which kind of contrasts that whole equity around access and stuff like that
1: yeah. And stewardship versus control around Tonga, eh? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and who is it Tonga for? Because the the Tonga lens with uh Pakia institution is often a transactional thing, right? Whereas Tonga and I think Tel Maori is nothing to do with transactions or it's not a transactional relationship, it's broader and deeper than that, right? So I think those are the kind of um, hidden or unknown challenges that exist for institutions who are now looking at moving in that space in that way. But the reality is, they've always been in that space, just not necessarily in the most appropriate way. Yeah.
2: Mm. Um, I think what some of that focuses on acquisition, too, eh? like yeah. ac- acquiring collections yeah. and like. Like, currently we're thinking, like, we are going to do an oral history recording, but the question then is, well, who's going to hold it, right? Is it our, should we be holding it? And we're thinking, well, possibly because I think that marae has some kind of local board or yeah. council involvement, Yeah. but if it was a mana whenua marae, again, it's back to... Are we the best best people to be capturing it, and if even if we do, because we've got the skills and the, the tech to do it, should it then be held at Auckland Library, or should it then go back to
1: the Manawhenua?
2: Yeah, yeah the, the and that may be our role in the future is just that we help to capture or create that content, but we don't hold it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Same stuff with research and everything else, and yeah. it's constantly. it's because of the context we're in, right, and the history that we've inherited that we have to think about this stuff. That's right. Because, you know, in principle, some things, the idea of accessibility, of knowledge is great, Mm. but then knowledge has always been tied to power and politics and particularly you know, these institutions that we're we're operating through. Yeah. Shane, do you mind sharing a little bit about what you do and your experience and with working with Māori, as a someone,
1: Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> at the moment I work... So I'm, I'm a public servant too, like Terry, um, but, but I work for central government. So at the moment I work as a principal advisor in design, but in, in a Māori specialist unit. But the function I'm supposed to provide in terms of thought leadership, um, is across, the footprint is across the whole agency. But But because it's such a new arena, I think, for the crown agencies to navigate, and yet the crown agencies have been in that space, one hundred eighty years, right? But but I guess I'm seeing a lot of shifts and differences now that require a different lens to it. It's to meet our obligations to iwi, um, through the treaty. So I think part of my role is looking at how I can support, uh, provide a different kind of thought leadership, but but support. The crown agency machinery and learning and understanding um, that realm space of te ao Māori Um, because it's not the role to for crown agencies to become Māori because it's they're not but it, it is about looking at learning and understanding everything we can so that we can fulfill our obligations to protect the rights and interests of of iwi Māori and that's one of the challenges around Tiriti to is that it's not hard to argue that the Crown hasn't done very well in that space. But to move into that that paradigm now, it requires a lot of different ways of seeing being and actualising as public servants. And also what it does, um, it's such new ground, there's not, there's not courses out to help you navigate that space. And yeah, so I think part of my role now is I work in that space between two worlds, but that's where my upbringing's probably helped a lot growing up as in three-dimensional thinking, as a natural part of how I've had to live growing up in Wanganui. So being Samoan, growing up in the Te Aupakea world, but also being privileged to be enriched and uplifted by Te Māori. So I think the experiences I've had over that time have really helped. But the w- the way to take it back I guess is when I look at Terry and I and our children. So there's Tao Māori and methodologies and all that kind of thing which is important. But in terms of Teal Marma, one of the experiences I guess Terry and I have four children. Um all, they're all adults now, but all our children were home birth. But a real cool thing is that my mother in law, Terry's mum, she had made, out of clay from our marae, this is back to Papakanga in the way, to Turanga Waiwai, from Atene Marae up the Wangarei River. She took clay and had upu bowls made. So when our, each of our children were born, the Fenua or peto, or afterbirth, um, for each of our children, was put inside, so the soil from the marae was already in the, the whenua, upu whenua. And so once the the afterbirth and petal was put in there. More soil was put on top, but then the lid was put on and sealed for it. So that upufuna was then taken back to Atani Marai and buried in a selected place. But then we had a native tree planted over it. So, so for each of our children, that's what was done. But it was done because, as, as a way of being, that came from the matauranga. In terms of, that. but what it signifies is it's part of that belonging to that space and that place, and so what's really neat is we got to to do that as a tikka but I didn't realize until years later that that would be really significant in terms of, um, I guess the work that we do, that it's not about the work that that we do in those spaces, but it's about why we do it, and I think it's also about the integrity about doing the right thing for the right reason, comes back to a higher kaupapa. And so I think in in my work, I would argue that my role isn't necessarily to serve Māori, but now I'm responsible to deliver certain things as a public servant, but my accountability is to them, So it's quite a different sort of model that I don't think was easy to work with possibly 10 years ago. But right now that's, you, you can thrive in that space working as a public servant with, with central government. And so for me that means certain things about um, not just what I do but the way I have to do it. And it's also about having access to, or well, having the right relationships with, with knowledge holders and kaumatua, and tūhonga to be able to check what I'm doing. And to be able to um, give me to account in terms of well, how does that what you're doing going to benefit um, a whakapapa decision for iwe Māori, in terms of that work. And I think sometimes we haven't always had access to do that while working in a crown agency. But I, I know for me, I'm really enjoying that part of it. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's a little bit of of what I do um, in that space. And you can edit that down to 20 seconds. <laughs>
0: Wondering if, um, just because we recently watched Dune, right? And I think it's related to some of the stuff we've talked about so far. But just because I like to find, I guess, how uh, would I put it? Metaphors in pop culture. so I find that sometimes pop culture is, I mean, people know it. It's more, people are more familiar with it. However, for me, I watched the movie and I didn't read the books like, you have and so you have more insights than I do but when I watched it I was just like wow this is really interesting because I wasn't aware that it was written in the 60s yeah it seemed like it could wow. you know was so relevant to our to political now. environmental crisis now um, but then even like indigenous issues like the men and then I even thought about it, I was like wait a minute was like that intention I don't know but was like intentional to call them free, free. men Freeman, I mean again in the 60s and so maybe now it would be like, free yeah. people because it would have been more gender-conscious today <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, maybe it was maybe it wasn't but Anyway, just watching it like the Freeman to me I was just like wow, this is like indigenous issues ongoing environmental crisis extraction and resources You know place-based relationships and even like the examples that both of you gave of like that intimate connection to place Tupupukaina, Why and then you see how the freemen interact as desert peoples. Mm-hmm. And like the desert is like it's their place. And to I, yourself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um... so much stuff. I remember like I mean I grew up in Utah, right? So it's a dry arid climate where I was at and people call it that is the West Desert um, that we have as part of that local kind of ecology. And I know that, you know, like there's always this idea of the desert of being barren and mm-hmm. you know, not having anything there. And I remember there's this Shoshone fella that when i was at the university of utah came and talked to us and and um was talking about he sang a song and the song was about how beautiful the desert was right and that's their source of life and so you know it wasn't this desolate empty place it was the source of life and then mm. anyways i was just thinking about that watching freedom i was like oh kind of made me connect to the desert and um Anything you want to say? It's fair game, right? I'm not an expert on the film. I just liked it. Shyness. Well, I bet. She, yeah, yeah. So that's why I was like, wanted to talk to you because you've read the books. You have a little bit more to say. That for me, I just thought there was so many like relevant indigenous issues, environmental crisis issues, political, you know, stuff that I was like, man, this is. There's so many rich metaphors that I can use in like classes mm. or even just to talk about issues in a different way. But I'll turn it over to see what you thought of the film. <laughs> And whatever thing you know, whatever you want to say about it,
2: I enjoyed the film. I guess it gave that like cinematic kind of experience to a book that is huge. Like it's this huge saga, right? Mm. And I was just thinking about it today. Like it's the fuck up of House Atreides, really. Um, but I don't have too much to say about it because Shane has done all the studies and really into it. If um except say that I read it in my fifth form I think my dad would have given it to me because I used to like science fiction and so he would supplement my reading from whatever else I could find in our school library.
1: He gave it to you in eighty four, eh? Maybe eighty four, eighty five. Yeah, but because you gave me that same book.
2: Yeah, my in, copy.
1: In eighty eight, yeah. and that's when I read
2: it. But, yeah, I think what what I enjoyed about it was the Freeman, like, you know, the indigenous story, the sacredness they had around water and, you know, their resource and, like, their rituals around water and that. Um, and then touched a bit again on it when, I think, in social anthropology, just sort of starting to see all that kind of stuff in that in that light with that lens um but true
1: because you read the book before you went to uni
2: yeah but i I think the stuff that shane enjoys about it is the stuff that i would have skipped over because i wasn't interested in the politics or the you know all of that kind of stuff (laughs) it's like the love story and the culture yeah (laughs) yeah that was what a trick thing
0: about it oh nice yeah no I feel like I'm like (laughs) I'm kind of in between like I like the some of the politics but I also like that ritual like when uh, that scene when he spits Mm. and they think it's an offence and he's like hold on no this is yeah Yeah, when you're in the desert like to give the water, your water that your body yeah. needs yeah. is like yeah. sacri- I was like oh man that's the ultimate gift. yeah I was all into that I was like- <laughs> yeah I guess so.
2: as a fictional book he did a really good job of catching all that kind of culture so, yeah yeah No, oh, I love mm. that
0: the other line that I thought was just so interesting just because you mentioned anthropology too is when they mentioned to I forget the name of the character but Jason Momoa's character oh yeah yeah um when native yeah, when they said they were like, oh, you've gone native. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is so cracker. Duck in Idaho, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because that's such a big thing like in like the history of anthropology as yeah, yeah, well, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, oh, anthropology yeah, has yeah. a really messy history. But then you also have these people, or like the person that Atta mentioned earlier that went native, right? Like yeah. this idea that, oh, you they became part of a place. And like even, in, you know, with Maya, uh, we have a story of these two people in... That ended up living with us prior to the conquest. And one went native, for lack of better words, like became yeah. Maya, like made yeah. a Maya person. We yeah. accepted him, got tattoos. he got, uh, And then the other one we made into a servant.
2: He wasn't kidding us. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, then when Cortez arrives in like up north, the one that was a servant, like we also, I mean, they call him a slave, but I don't think he was, a, he couldn't use it in the same context because they let him go. Like you are you go, He went back And hung out with his people yeah. And when he tried To go get the other guy The other guy's like uh, he, he pretty much says Then my face is tattooed My ears are pierced My kids are from here It's like I'm not That anymore Yeah Anyways I thought yeah. it was An interesting yeah. line yeah. There's a whole realm Where we could go into that But the fact that Jason Momoa Is a Kanaka Maoli, yeah. So outside the film <laughs> yeah. He is a native yeah. Right But then yeah. in the film They're like Oh yeah. you gotten its That's So I just thought yeah. That was so Yeah Yeah It, funny. it was funny Funny well, I don't know What you think Shane?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a good reminder to me that Terry did social anthropology. Um, because I only just discovered the author probably 10 years ago. But having now discovered the author, it's interesting because he wasn't a social anthropologist. What he was, was um, an investigative journalist. And and so for him, uh, he says about how he spent countless, he used his investigative journalist to dig deeper not just take the surface stuff, but go underneath. And so he spent a lot of time with different anthropologists to help unpack his concepts around... And I think it's reflected really well through the book. But yeah, I think my real interest too was the story within a story within a story, Mm. right? The multi-levels. But what's interesting is, uh, a typical way, I I see legislative acts like the Local Government Act 2002 has the Four Well-Beings. So the Four Well-Beings cover... uh, cultural, uh, economics, um, environmental. What I like about Dune is that it has all those elements actually themed in, but they're crafted in and they're layered. And I think that's what I like about Dune is that when it comes to the strategic stuff in the political context, which when that stuff plays out, it impacts on the planetary systems. And then on top of that, Underneath all that, you've still got the ecological issues which are all intertwined into it. So it's not like you're reading an environmental, ecological, political textbook. But as you go through the story, what you find is all these other elements come out of it in, in quite a natural way. So with the political thing that I found really interesting is how its strategic feints and counterfeints and just the layers of different things that are happening that on the surface make sense but then as it plays out and different moves happen you find that the real reason as to why they're doing things how do you apply a process of thought strategy and rigor to work out what is the true aim of a particular house there's a lot you know it covers in terms of that but then it also drops down to the interpersonal play of people who play those cards, but are also impacted personally in that space. So I thought it was really... so I, And that's why I really liked the movie. I think they did really well, because they did well to split the movie in half. Because when Lynch did the 1984 movie, his original movie was five hours yeah. wow. to they cover grap- the whole book. Trying
2: to grapple with it. It's such a yeah. huge story. <clears throat>
1: but But what happened was the movie... the the production well the movie houses realised you know Americans aren't going to buy that five hours so the problem for Lynch is that they they culled it right back so they fit the whole book into one movie of two and a half hours which what's been great about Deneuve's approach to it is he he set out and made them purposely two separate movies for the first book and so that's why we've
2: there's another movie though, right? The one, there's one that
1: Oh, that's a TV series
2: a, No, 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 it? it's a movie that's, that never sort of Oh, <laughs> Attraction? Well, they, they, I don't know if they ever finished it because it was someone grappling oh, it was with before, this, it was before, it yeah, was before Lynch's one the, Yeah, David Lynch's So
1: Lynch's like one the, inherited the storyboards from yeah, it, yeah, the first yeah, one Yeah, yeah, yeah That's right, so It's just huge
2: just,
0: I like that it was complex yeah, you know, and I remember that that was one of the things that I read was that somebody I can't remember where, but there was some review that was saying that they were successful, but the the concern was that they were gonna like have too much specialized knowledge in the movie about because of how you have to explain everything, yeah, yeah. Right. who these people are, where they come from, and yeah. like, there's definitely I had questions after watching it the first time, but I still got the main gist of it, but it just made me want to go back into it.
1: Mm. That's what I liked about this one is it it layered it enough so that you didn't because the the challenge with lynch's one in 1984 is that it invested a lot into giving you all that knowledge and that context. but with this one it's telling you enough so that you you feel like well, I want to know more about this that, and yeah. the other uh, actually i feel like reading the book yeah you know and and I
0: think especially in the world that we live in at the moment of like oversimplified narratives yeah I really i think I guess that's what excited me yeah. is that to have Something in in pop culture, something in the mainstream that was as complex as this. Yeah. yeah. Like we need, well, this is definitely multi yeah. load, man. I feel like we need more of that, and yeah. especially for the public consciousness because, you know, the simplified narrative is easier to process, right? Yeah. It's quicker, it's easier. Goodies
2: and baddies, that's what you need.
0: Yeah, that's it, right? And I think. Yeah. The more complex the story, the, the, the better it helps well, that, develop that's critical thinking. And
1: interesting because they launched it not in the United States market, right? They launched it in France first. So it actually had a rollout throughout international before it went to the mm. American market, which is interesting.
0: That is um, interesting, yeah.
1: But, you know, for me, I was thinking, yeah, you know, is the American market going to be ready for it, you know, in terms of that, that layering, in terms of knowledge and... But that that's the thing I do... I do like the interplay between Bene Gesserit, Mentats, uh, the the different houses, the Landsrad and the Imperium, and Chone, Company Holdings. So that's what I think they do so well, is if you get into understanding all that, it's not far from what I do for a job, you know, in terms of the the different layers, uh, governing body, all that kind of thing. So I think he did it real well, not just from um, an anthropological feel to it, <clears throat> but he did really well to capture human behaviour, in, in terms of, which I thought that's why I think in terms of bestsellers for me, as a book that replaced, probably the Bible in terms of. Oh look, it even topped off the Book of Mormon. No, like, yes, yeah, so it was really nice, and the other thing too about, um June is it's not hard to transition to an intellectual context of it but that's the only other book i've read a hundred times of the number of pages is the book of mormon and the bible (laughs) yeah
0: but but that's kind of what you know like there there are these canonical texts right and they're usually Mm. the religious texts Mm. that are thought of as the thing that you come back to Mm. right that you have to read more than once to get but really like that should be how we engage most texts right and so i like it when there's a story like this where i'm like yeah i want to go back because there's more there and I want to go and like mm. try to unpack meaning and different stuff. And yeah, then, yeah. I mean, there's a saying, right, that a picture's worth a thousand words. And so it's just interesting thinking about it. Then in this case, we're just like, the, the picture's not enough to No, capture. It, isn't, it, isn't, it isn't. It isn't. And so yeah. like, you have to think about art in so many different ways, you know, because usually when I think about a picture worth a thousand words, it's the... Importance of the visual, mm. but then with this, it's like, well, wait a minute, the written has so much, yeah. because your imagination just goes, yeah. yeah, could go in so many places. And yeah, and sometimes when you read the stuff, right, if it, things aren't how you imagined it, that could be right, that's always the tension. So for you to like both the book and mm. then a, mm. a visual yeah. interpretation mm. is, is usually a, is a good indicator, mm. yeah, definitely. That's yeah, the thing that I was thinking of as well. It's always good to have more complex storytelling, yeah, get people to think more and. And, um, well that's another comment about Dune is that
1: in other books or movies when they talk about military stuff and battles it's easy to fall to get intoxicated around tactics weapon systems and all that kind of stuff What I like about Dune is it has a, a people perspective to to those militaries and it, it layers it and unpacks it So there's a narrative backstory to the origin of the Sōduka There's a military... Um, contribution as to why the Emperor has turned against House Atreides, and a, a bit of it has to do with the balance of exchange between the popularity of their leadership and their perceived morals and ethics, in contrast to the Harkonnens. But the other thing is, and one of the tipping point things for the Emperor was House Atreides had got their military to a fine tuned level of capability. Um, that was seen as equal to the saruka, the, And so what's interesting there is that when you have the United Nations, like all the other houses, like the Red, the only thing that is their counterbalance is if they all unite together to mm. to be able to protect themselves or counter the em- emperor's Sarukar army. But on their own, they're no match for the Sarukar. So the interesting thing for House Atreides is that got their military to a level and their weapon system, the weirding way that they taught that that was now equal to the emperors. So that was why Duke um, Leto Atreides was now a threat to the Emperor and the throne, is because they could stand by themselves against the Sarokah. Whereas for all this so it's interesting in terms of foreign policy that's happening in the South China Sea, right? Um, and in terms of the United States and China is it's a similar thing that if, yeah, if those things move ahead only as a collective group do they stand. It's like NATO, only combined do those nations stand a counter defense um, against Mother Russia. You know, in terms of that so it's interesting how uh, possibly the times back in the 50s and 60s when he wrote the book, he was able to theme that in, but now it's even relevant today yeah. in terms of that context.
0: Right, still yeah. relevant, yeah, yeah. so like prophecy. Yeah, yeah. The, my appreciation for sci fi is is that I guess juxtaposition of time, like where you can talk about what's happening now, but using an aesthetic that seems so far mm-hmm. away, distant mm-hmm. in time and space. Well, that makes it accessible,
1: yeah. too, yeah. right? As opposed to talking about, like I know for us, like Māori-pākya issues, but when you use a, a, an element of separation, all of a sudden it's. It might make it more easier for an oppressor to be able to see and understand yeah. um, a point if you take them out of it.
0: Yeah. You know? Oh man, that reminds Like when I when I teach stuff that has to do with racial colonialism here, I always start with examples from across the ditch because it's easy to pick on Australia, right? Or even <laughs> uh, pick on the U.S. Mm. And then I flip it, but I always start elsewhere because it is. Yeah, finding it mm. with students it's easier. Sometimes, yeah. if like, you start oh, with man. the New
1: Zealand context, yeah, then there's, the there's a defensiveness, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, but
0: if we start elsewhere, there's a little bit of distance, and they so that's pedagogy and <laughs> in, in,
1: in <laughs> practice, right? Yeah, yeah. As, as an educator, you've got to look at you know, you've got these elements, but when you look at your, your learning, your students, it's looking at what how how is this going to be accessible to them. So, what pedagogy you want to approach in terms of our layering and where we start the conversation, and then how you bring It back, yeah,
0: localize it. And mm. any, um, we'll get this last cup, and then if there's any last words of advice you want to give to the <laughs> world, um, <laughs> I'm still needing advice myself. Or insights. Insights. Right. Right. <laughs>
1: well, if anything, what COVID's shown is it pays to be in the public sector, <laughs> right?
2: It pays
1: to be in the public sector in a pandemic, yeah, in a
2: pandemic, oh. can still be know. paid.
1: I really enjoy it in the public service um, based on what I see its purpose and, and role is. Like I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I haven't always been in the public service because I'm, well, yeah, as you know, my background, <coughs> I'm, I'm ex private sector as well. Um, and I've worked in community space. My idea to people would be just work anywhere and everywhere to begin with because everything you do is going to be of huge value um, as you progress through your career. Yeah, because I don't have any quals or
2: <coughs>
1: any, any degrees or anything. But because of the nature of the work I've done over the last 30 years, all of a sudden, I've, the skill set and lens I bring is, is in demand at the moment. You know, and just would never have been able to pick that 20 years ago or 30 years ago. <coughs> but that's what I'm finding is and nothing really beats your lived experience of things as well.
2: I, don't know, I think the public sector, for me, what I found most about it is well, when he was, when Shane was <coughs> being a business person, um, it just provided us with some security. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Oh, so, like with the yeah. pandemic, right?
0: It well, keeps running. Yeah, it, has to still, keep running. it
2: keeps ticking, like ticking, along, and and most people in the public sector, you know, they they hoping to do a good job, and you know, that kind of thing um yeah so the public sector for i think Alfano has served us pretty well yeah. yeah i think at the moment it's in a bit of a crisis because it's trying to do everything with a little bit of putia you know and it and it can't it can't do that and it's coming to that realization itself pretty much all i, I have to say i think
0: oh, awesome <laughs>